Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Welcome back to the Leadership Drip, Rob. It's my goal in life to get people to the table who are your heroes, and I yeah. feel like this guy is another one. This is this is a big one because he's helping me through my dissertation. Well, not well, he may help us through our <laughs> not dissertation. Not today may be that day of help. So is it? Yeah, today may be that day. But we do have James Emery White, Doctor James Emery White, and he's the founding pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also an author of several books that we love, including Meet Generation Z, The Rise of the Nuns. But he's here to talk to us today about his newest book, After I Believe. So welcome to the show, Dr. White. Thank you for having me. So I want to know right off the bat, because I, I love generational conversations. I love sort of talking about, especially younger generations. What led you to sort of begin the research and begin the study on especially Generation Z? There wasn't anything out there hardly when I started. And uh, the church that I pastor, uh, there's two dynamics at play that were driving it. We have over 70% of our total growth coming from those who were previously unchurched. Mm. Coupled with the fact that we are an extremely young church, um, despite the age of its senior pastor, the average person that attends is in their 20s or early 30s. And so I was noticing uh, a shift in culture as you got younger and younger, a shift in sensibilities, a shift in a lot of different things. Um, when I had started studying this, they wasn't even settled on calling it Generation Z at the time. But I wanted to get my finger on it because uh, as a person who academically enjoys the study of culture has written, and I write quite extensively about the intersection of faith and culture and ministry and culture, this seemed to me just um, uh, very complimentary to my study earlier on the rise of the nuns, which also was, I didn't intend for it to be, but it's the first book that came out on the rise of the nuns. And this was the first book that came out on Meet Generation Z. So I was fortunate in that it, they came out at times when it was really starting to have uh, people's interest peaked, but it was purely uh, my own cultural studies and my interest in it as a pastor, and uh, just knowing that that was one of the seismic shifts happening culturally, and I wanted to stay on top of it. Yeah, that's really good, and I think, you know, one of the things that we experience here on campus, especially as uh, now that Gen Z is fully integrated at the university level, right, depending on who you read, but I, I don't think it's any real big question. Um, what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of the Generation Z students who have grown up in church, right? There's this conversation of resiliency in discipleship. They come to school, even if it's a Christian school, and they somehow disconnect from, from faith expression, faith practice, faith development, discipleship. So um, this is in a higher ed setting, obviously. Uh, and, and Jeff and I both are, are pastoral people uh, in, in the most literal sense. But, yeah. but are you still seeing that disconnect happen at the local church level? I mean, when they graduate from high school and they go from youth group to wherever is next that Mecklenburg community church, what, what's, what's happening with those dynamics? Well, there's several things that happen. I think that, um, I, I think it's, it's just almost, um, textbook for the typical Christian kid who was involved in church to go to college and not go to church. Um, and I, uh, I just don't think that's uncommon. I don't think that's a Gen Z thing. I think that's been there from day one. Uh, and a whole combination of things. I mean, for the first time in their life, they don't maybe have to, uh, if they were forced to, they don't, uh, there's no pressure to that there might've been even among certain peer groups. Um, they may not find a good church that they like. Uh, they um, were out very late Saturday night. <laughs> there's just a whole lot of things that, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of kids um, uh, or students, uh, they probably don't, don't want to be referred to as kids. It's probably a little condescending, but most students, um, no matter what their background was, they, they take some time to do a spiritual reassessment. Yeah. And, and I think that part of that is, is uh, involved as well. Yeah. So at, at your church, um, how are you guys helping build on ramps for them to do that? in a space where they can stay sure. so connected and still still have that space to develop and grow and ask the hard questions. One of the things that I think is absolutely paramount for pastors and student leaders to do is to not let the questions of college be heard for the first time in college. That's mm -hmm. good. 
you they've got to be exposed to particularly if they go to secular universities they've got to be exposed to the kind of predatory scholarship and the kind of predatory professorial teaching that there is that is purposefully trying to undermine and be subversive to the christian faith so if the kid is hearing about that, the student is hearing about that for the first time in that classroom from someone who is an expert with a PhD, it's going to be devastating to them. And they're going to say, well, what else don't I know? What else didn't they tell me about? So I believe in a very robust approach to both um, enlightenment type of apologetics, but also cultural apologetics, so uh, that the student, when they go to college, whether they're going to a Christian one or not, because they're going to hear a lot of this stuff in the dorm rooms if they don't hear it in the classroom, even in a Christian setting, yeah. um, and they're going to be exposed to it on the internet and a thousand other places. They 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 need to be exposed to these things. They need to be having these conversations. Certainly, no later than high school. So that's one thing. I think another thing is is that the churches and student ministries need to say to graduating high school seniors, there needs to be kind of a come to Jesus conversation about listen, this is what's going to happen. This is all that you're going to be exposed to and it's going to be made available to you sexually here's what's going to be made available to you in terms of um behavior and lifestyle and uh you need to get grounded in some type of christian support network whether it's a campus ministry whether it is a local church whether it's a really good small group you need to get that where you're going and you need to get that established in the first 90 days of your freshman year and you will never regret it but if you don't, you will always regret it. Right. So yeah. there's certain things that I think that we can do to help them in that transition um, and, and, you know, prepare them for that. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's some of the metrics maybe, or even the thought on, you mentioned the first 90 days. And what I think we've seen here on campus is students, and I've heard this said, they'll try four churches, but they try four churches over four years. So what is the stickability if they don't get connected in that first 90 days? Well, it's not good. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, um, <laughs> I really do think that the four churches in four years line is interesting. I, I Students at that age, people of that age, are profoundly influenced by their peer group. And they're going to kind of have a flock herd mentality about what church they attend to, what student ministry they attend to. Um, and, and they're gonna kind of go and be where their tribe is. And if right. their tribe isn't at a particular place, they're not going to be there either. So these are some things that, um, what I would say is, hey, find a good tribe, be proactive and let that begin to be something that's influential. Um, find a good church and stick with it. Um, I think that uh, I, every, I've had so many situations where, you know, someone will say, okay, I'm moving here, or my, my child's going there, or do you know of any good churches? Mm -hmm. And so if we can even get them planted and plugged in on the front end. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, but there, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm very sensitive to all this because I, I was not a Christian in when I started college. Mm. I became a Christian at 20. And so I know what it's like to be a non-Christian in college and a Christian in college. And I kind of know the way, you know, that can be for good or bad. Right. And um, and I, I, I really, I think the heart and soul of it is who you surround yourself with. Yeah, that's, that's great. Finding a tribe. Um, so how have you guys then at Mecklenburg been able to capture a younger congregation? About 10 years ago or more, I was speaking at a church that you would know. And uh, one of the largest, fastest growing churches in the United States. And I was speaking for this. He was a former student of mine, actually, pastor. And uh, so I was um, looking around. And I was just struck at how young the church was, you know, almost exclusively a lot of college students and 20 somethings. And, um, and the stage was young and everything was young. And I, and I just, I just, I just walked away feeling like how old mm -hmm. Mac felt. 
and and here man we we were the it church we you know we were the young church we were the cutting edge church and all of a sudden i mean we are not going to become the old church a one generation and done kind of thing and uh it didn't help that i went back that weekend the next weekend and i swear every person on it was a fluke but like every person on stage that weekend was in their 40s yeah and um and I was like one of the younger ones on this, you know, so anyway, I just swore that's not going to happen. I had never really known of many churches that skewed young um, over time. They always skew older, mm-hmm. but uh, I went to work on it and I've written about this some, there's a book I did called what they didn't teach you in seminary where I have a whole chapter in it on, you know, skewing young and the importance of that. And so we did, we went on like a, 10 or 12 year rip where we got younger and younger every year until we got kind of back to the church planning days mm. and it's been wonderful now we're large enough that we still have a great cross section i mean we've got ten thousand, you know active attenders so it's 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 we've got the diversity in age but you get to by you know you attract who you platform this is just the most simple kind of church growth 101 you you attract who you platform um and you attract how you staff. Yep. Three-fourths of our staff are in their 20s. Three-fourths of our ministerial staff. Um, and uh, our, our stage is purposefully young. And I'll also add, this is the same principle for diversity. If you're an all you know an Anglo church and you want uh, to grow and have attract more from the black community, well, do you have any African Americans on staff? Do you have anybody on stage? I mean, if somebody comes, are they going to see anybody like them? We're an extremely integrated and diverse church. We totally reflect the um, the the demographics of our area in terms of race, and which is really all you can hope for. Yeah. So we're just ecstatic about that. But again. You get who you platform. I, I love that. Um, I was on staff at Saddleback Church for several years, and and I remember Rick could literally articulate for you the years when they made a huge shift in the worship culture, in terms of stylistic, in terms of platforming, in terms of leadership base, and what it looked like, and what the shift in the style of the music was. And I think you know when you get to churches like Mecklenburg or Saddleback or uh, you know, and at some point, even even Stephen Furtick will go through this, where he has to readjust his own culture. Like, it doesn't matter the church. I think this is such a critical piece, and the, one of the major reasons why we even started the podcast in the first place mm-hmm. is because we're seeing this huge gap between what's being platformed and what we're trying to actually reach. And what you just said, though, speaks volumes about Rick as a leader. I'm not going to say it about myself, but I'll say it about him. It takes a humility to change what you yourself created right yeah and what you yourself propagated and what you yourself may have even conferenced about and i think that that though is what leaders have to do they have to have a ruthless humility um, about things that they have done methodologically like when we recently you know made the decision to uh cancel all of our sites and shut all of our sites down and we stopped being a multi-site church and we were a multi-site pioneer and we did that totally for reasons because we felt like the digital revolution had made that an archaic model yeah that the barriers were no longer geographic but anyway that's another conversation but the the musical style um uh, approach to ministry structure so many things like that um has to be kept and and um fluid it always has to be wet cement. And that's another reason why having younger staff is helpful to older leaders because you have what I call reverse mentoring, which yeah. is desperately needed. Yeah, we talk a lot about that on the show, the reverse yeah. mentoring. And so I'd like to kind of to pick at that a little bit. How has going younger as a congregation affected you as a communicator? It's interesting. Um, I don't try to be hip. I, I think that's the most distasteful, garish thing when I see uh men or women but i'll just speak to men who are in their uh even 40s 50s 60s and their skinny jeans and and sneakers and and trying to look hip and i just think it's i think it's revolting what's interesting is it's also revolting to who they're trying to appeal to which Mm -hmm. is a younger audience it's revolting to them uh they just don't know it and so uh i don't i i i 
act my age <laughs> and I dress, you know, uh, I, I dress very conservatively and normally um, I don't, I don't try to talk hip with slang. I think that's also off-putting. What I do though, is I'm, uh, I'm would like to think that I'm extremely culturally relevant. Mm -hmm. I'm very culturally astute. And this sounds self-congratulatory. I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying that I work hard at understanding contemporary culture. They're not going to name a musical group, a film, a podcast, a book, um, a site. There's not going to be much that I'm not up on. And I can talk and weave that in in a way that that builds bridges of identification and 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 and, and connection. But it's not just that. It's not just that I work very hard to stay current. And that, and that that you know peppers your teaching. I also work very hard to speak to the issues that are most relevant and 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 pressing on people today. Um, and so it's not just the 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 knowledge; it's the topical approach. Right. The third thing that I would say is that when people feel like, okay, I'm 59; I'll be 60 my next birthday that a 60-year-old person can't speak to a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old person, that, that, that's so completely misguided. You, you, you can if, you, if, you're, if you're attempting to, and also if you understand that a 25 or 30-year-old doesn't want to hear about marriage from a, another 25 or 30-year-old. Yeah. They, they don't want to hear about how to finish well from someone who's barely started. They, and, and it's comical to me it is comical to me. I'll say this and I'll sound like a crotchety old person. When I when you see people who are in their 30s or maybe barely 40 and they're writing books that no one should have any business writing until they're 60 um, because there's just, they haven't had the life for it yet. But what I'm finding with the, particularly the younger um, individuals is that they have a huge desire for counsel and mentoring. Most of them came from dysfunctional families. They didn't have strong father figures in their life. They longed to be fathered, uh, to have a spiritual father, a, a person um, that can pour into their lives. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll speak as a man, because uh, I can't speak for women in leadership, but I'm, it cuts both ways. But I would say that they're looking for a man that they can respect. They're looking for someone that, that they can learn from. And so there's this wonderful blend. It really is a powerful synergistic thing when, you know, I, you know, the arts team has done their thing and maybe the average age on that stage is 20, I don't know, young, <laughs> and they're having at it and, and just, just nailing it and everything about the film and the edginess and everything that we've done. And then out walks like an adult, <laughs> and but but not one that's weird but who who really talks to them and not at them and goes with depth and and really can bring life coaching i mean obviously i'm i'm talking like we don't get into the scriptures everything is all scripture i mean it's all right. teaching yeah. scripture but it, it's um but there's that that wonderful synergy that just seems like almost perfect for uh for actually all ages because people who are more my age love the music they don't want to see a bunch of you know they're they're they love the youth and energy of it but yeah. at the same time they also like having a teacher that can you know speak with um hopefully some wisdom yeah i think one of the the cool things i guess it's a cool thing pretty sure it's a cool thing is as we you know the more conversations we have about um engaging young adults in leadership integrating young adults into the church ministry having conversations about life and ministry on campus. I mean, all of these, all of these conversations are, are, are leading to some very simple conclusions that I think we overcomplicate a lot of times. And I, I think what you're talking about right now is a key one. And that is authenticity always trumps yeah. creativity, right? They, they really want to know from someone who, who not only has a, you know, not a perfect life, but, but someone who actually, believes what they teach, someone who's actually walking out the faith they they ascribe to, someone who's actually had some bumps, bruises, and scrapes, and they're willing to share it with people. And so I think it's the authenticity factor um, that helps bridge the gap in those intergenerational relationships, which people like Matt Locke and Kenneman say are so critical to that resilient discipleship piece. And so I think the more authentic we become as leaders, and I think there's a big conversation to be had about 
information in terms of over-divulgence of information, right. but the authenticity of our leadership, I think, is what helps build that bridge for younger generations. Well, and Dr. White, you're echoing what we've heard over and over from previous guests, banning out of Jesus culture, Ben Stewart, who's at Passion City, yeah. D.C., other pastors who are saying the very same things. Like, I'm not trying to be cool. I'm trying to be present and be relevant in context, not relevant in so much dress or style, but just relevant in being a person who understands them, has an awareness of them, has a, an awareness of their culture. Um, so in light of that, and you talk about the mentoring and disciples or the mentoring piece, how have you sort of brought about a discipleship atmosphere there at Mecklenburg? You know, that's a huge part of the new book. Well, you know, let, let's, let's, let's back up for a minute okay. and, and realize that we've got some critical challenges that we face internally that war against uh, authentic discipleship, spiritual formation, and even allegiance to a local church. And here are the internal things that I think are plugging us. Um, the average Christian, and I'll, we're talking about younger Christians, so we'll go ahead and just keep with that demographic, are extremely insecure and culturally affected. And so we see a large number of them that uh, are just uh, will just gravitate toward whatever church speaker event does have this stamp of hipness on it that makes them feel like they're not weird in culture, but they are. And this is the danger of it. It actually reflects culture, feels like culture. I'm in on like, I'm not weird for being a Christian or I'm, I'm with a good hip group. It just so happens to be Christian. I mean, there's all of these factors that go into play, which is why we elevate certain Christian celebrities, which I think is an extremely toxic thing to do. And yet the thing is, is that then we, we keep it going. We, we then say, oh, well, I may not agree with that, but I'm going to get them for my conference because there's an it factor. And so it's like the whole system propagates this. And so we need to somehow... Uh, and, 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 and in various towns, you'll see this migratory flow pattern of Christians. Oh, they'll go to this church because it's got a new pastor, or they'll, maybe they'll run to this church because it's got a new worship leader, or they'll go to this church because it's got a new building. And it's all so transient, and it's also superficial, and it all wars against any type of real, true Christian discipleship. You can get a crowd that way. You might even keep a crowd with a steady dose of pep rallies. But you're not going to really create anything substantive, and the average person, part of that, is 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 living off of energy, living off of charisma, and as opposed to really going down deep, which is why there's so much turnover there among even attenders, or why you know it's 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 it, anyway. Here's what is feeding this not just the celebrity culture and the hip toxic culture and all those kinds of things, which we've seen in the news lately with moral failures left and right and the crisis of character. And there's going to be a lot more to come that we just don't know about, uh, or they're in a bubble of protection. Like we saw protecting Bill Hybels for almost 40 years. Um, so we don't know when Robbie Zacharias, so we don't know what's going on out there. We just know it's awful. Yeah. Um, there's that. And then also warring against discipleship is the spiritual narcissism. And it's a spiritual narcissism that makes um, everything about me. Uh, you know, Narcissus was a character in Greek mythology who saw his reflection in the water and became so enamored with himself, he, he never moved on. He was completely preoccupied. And that's where we get our term narcissism. And uh, there is a, a lot of people feel like um, the church is, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out what's wrong with the church. I think one of the things that's wrong with the church today is spiritual narcissism, that people look at the church and it's all about their needs. I mean, listen to how we talk. I want to go where I'm fed. I want to go where my needs are met. They walk out of a worship service and say, I didn't get anything out of it. Um, and do we hear ourselves? Do we hear that self-absorption? And this from a, a group of people who, who our leader said, I didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and, and towel over my arm. And whoever wants to be first must be last and on and on it goes. And so we have this sense where everything is about me and the church exists for me and my needs. And so when I look at discipleship, I don't think discipleship. I don't think Mathetes. I don't think learner. I think, uh, I think um, consumer. 
I, I think you're going to inject me. You're going to serve me up what I want and what I you know, need. And so, whereas the actual Greek term for disciple is a very gritty term. I mean, it's like you roll up your sleeves. Your job is to be a learner. And that means that's hard work. And we've lost that. We've made it consumer. And so I think that one of the biggest things that we've done at Mac, if we've, you know, if anything, is we just have a culture in our midst that is not consumeristic. We have a four word phrase that is just pounded into our core. It's not about me. Mm. And that plays out all over the place. That not only puts the discipleship, you know, onus on the individual and less on, you know, you know, done for you. Um, it also makes us radically uh, turned out in terms of our evangelism because spiritual narcissism is the number one thing against evangelism. I am not going to do what it takes to reach lost people. I'm not going to change where I need to change for us to reach lost people. I'm not going to, you want me to park where, go to church when? You want to do what on stage? I Listen, uh, I this is about me. Wow. I don't like that kind of music or I don't like this or, you know, and, and again, to every, you know, any hint of that stuff, it's not about you. You know, it's about the person who's not even here yet. Yeah. And I think that's one of the cool things about, about this particular conversation is because I think, I think Gen Z, since that's kind of our focus of, of the conversation, but I think just across the board in general, there, there's, there's a growing exhaustion of this overabundance of self-inflicted sort of narcissistic reality that largely is, is boosted by social media, right? I mean, I'm not anti-social media. I have all the accounts necessary, right? But the point is, you know, I, I think we get so wrapped up in that comparison stream. We get so wrapped up in the celebrityism. And I've had conversations for two straight days, even before this podcast about celebrity Christianity with different people. It's it, so it, it, it is a clear and evident and present danger in, in our, in our church reality. But I do think that there is a, a growing shift, even if it's subtle, of, of a of a genuine desire to actually be the disciple, to actually live the life that Jesus is calling us to. And I think for me, and, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit clearer, one of the big disconnects is, is our churches, and I say this generally, don't know how to bridge that gap because in on one hand, we're still being charged by culture to go this direction. And on the other hand, we sense the yeah. loss and we're having trouble. Here's another, I'm going to say two things. One goes back to a question you asked me earlier that I didn't respond to fully, but also to this. Let's not forget what we're trying to do with discipleship. Discipleship is not about somebody getting spiritually fat. It is not about head knowledge, and it's not about just understanding things. Uh, it's not even a bunch of stuff that you do, you know, like having uh, a daily devotion, for example. Discipleship at its, and I would argue this case, at its New Testament core, you were discipled for the mission. No other reason. You, 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 know, you didn't go, it was never about, oh, I just, you know, so that you can worship or, or that you need to be, you're going to have all of eternity to worship. You're discipled for the mission. And the mission was always to reach lost people. And when people try to pit evangelism against discipleship, I get very irritated because you don't, you're not going to have anybody to disciple if you don't do evangelism. And besides, don't make it an either or. It's not a, it's not a false right. dichotomy. You can do discipleship and evangelism simultaneously. If you can't, then Jesus lied because he said we, we could and we should. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, uh, the idea is that one of the reasons why discipleship probably feels a little bit different at Mac or a church like Mac is that we're not discipling you for you. We're discipling you for the mission. And I think that's where discipleship is way off in conversations mm -hmm. and in dialogues. And, and it, again, it's built off that spiritual narcissism. Mm -hmm. So when we're discipling people, it's, it's totally to get them in the game and making a difference. Now, yes, that involves personal spiritual formation, but I mean, it's, it's, it's to be used. I mean, we're sharpening an ax so that it can be swung. And 
the second thing I would say about discipleship is that um, we've gotten kind of, I think you said earlier, we've made it too complicated. I, I, I think we've made it too esoteric, almost like we're trying to create through discipleship, this spiritual experience for somebody, a breakthrough moment, an aha, I've reached a certain plane. Um, you know, it, it's like, almost like if I'm discipled, it's going to be like, I'm fully going to understand my number on the Enneagram or something. <laughs> it, it's, it's what I have seen missing. This is one, one of the reasons why I was so passionate about this book um, is that um, the way, and this is going to sound, uh, let me just say it and not worry about how it sounds. The way we used to disciple people, even back in the 80s, was so radically different than today. You don't even find those kinds of discipleship books written anymore. In other words, I can go right now and I can pick the top probably five or six, seven discipleship books on the market that have been written in the last five years. And there won't be any of them that, that actually teach someone how to pray, how to have a quiet time, how to read the Bible, how to, and how to actually apply the Bible in various aspects of your life, how to worship. There's a lot of stuff about those things, but not a lot about how to do it. It's almost like we're, we're, we're having discipleship programs and classes for this mythical advanced Christian who we're assuming knows all this stuff. And I, I just have been around long enough and have worked with enough people to know that that's just a myth. The average Christian who's been a Christian in 20, 25 years has never been discipled on the foundational aspects of the Christian faith. Yeah. And that's why in, you know, in, in the book, I, I literally, it, it was, and um, it was, you know, what, what are the deceptions? What are the myths with discipleship? You know, how do you, how do you do Bible? How do you talk to God? How do you spend time with him? How do you actually do community? We talked about community. How do you do community yeah. with other Christians? How do you find your spiritual gift and put it into play? How do you worship in spirit and truth? And on and on it goes. And and how do you share your faith in a natural way? I mean, these are the kinds of things that, that we're not rolling up our sleeves and passing on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found from the people who've read this um, in early advanced copies is they says, okay, this is a book that is perfect to put in the hands of a new believer, but my goodness, I didn't know this stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I, I can't, you know, wait to get this in the hands of everyone in my church because they don't know this stuff. And I, you know, um, so anyway, I, I'm hoping that this book meets a, a real need because I do think that it's, it's, we need to kind of pull back and, as you said, not make it so complicated and really make sure that we've laid a foundation for a life in Christ. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I'm sorry, pardon me for interrupting, but no, I, no, no, I'm done too much because mm -hmm. I think. I think we need to take discipleship. Um, how do I want to say this? We need to take discipleship out of the religious realm and into, into the believers realm where they're trans it's transcends outside of the church walls, right? Discipleship is not a programmatic structure or a strategy. Discipleship is a lifestyle. It's a calling. It's something that Christ died in order for us to do so that we could actually go be his hands and feet to the world. And I think you know, one of the great conversations we've had with, with Addison Bevere is talking about the secular saint and the need for growing discipleship there. And I think this book, I mean, lands squarely in that realm of conversation of where, you know, you don't have to be in pastoral ministry uh, to understand the fullness and the foundations of what it means to be a Christian. That should be something you do just because you're a believer, not because you're a pastor or a religious leader. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I think that the, another reason why this is such an important thing to get back to in terms of discipleship is because, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm very sensitive to this because over 70% of our growth is from the unchurched and continues to be. So all I do is work with fresh converts. And what I think is often easily forgotten in traditional churches that tend to grow from the already convinced, which is the majority, sadly, um, in, um, but is that they, they assume certain things that Christians know. Mm -hmm. And not only do they not know that, but let's go back further. Even 
um, because we are in a post-Christian moment, that's, that's official, it's a post-Christian culture, even the Christians who've been Christians for a long time have got a whole heck of a lot more of the world in them than they do Jesus, simply because of the culture in which they have been born. You know, culture is the world into which you were born and the world which was born in you. And so it, it's, you're, 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 you're permeated by this. It's, it's the air that you breathe. And, and the average Christian is almost as, you know, is very secular mm -hmm. in so many of their mindsets and so many of their attitudes and so much of their lives. They're just secular. And, and a lot of times we say, we want to focus on the, the lifestyle aspects of that secularity. My goodness, it's the attitudes and the mindsets that are just off the charts. Yeah. Um, and we don't even know it. We, we're not even aware of it um, until you start poking around and you find these vast chasms of undiscipled thinking and undiscipled living and undiscipled attitudes. I mean, we're talking massive amounts of territory untouched by Christ. And they don't even know it because they don't even know that it's something that isn't of Christ. Wow. That's so good. And so that's why going back and covering, you know, here's a dozen areas that you, you got to know about. You got to almost like, look, here's the 20 books you better have read by the age of 30, or here's the top 10 best films in this genre. It's like, we, we think that people know that and they right. don't. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, no, I, and I agree. I think in our work with students, I think we, I've come away so many times just going, I, I made a false assumption that you knew this belief. Yep. If you understood this doctrinal stance of our, of our faith, and had to go backwards and go, okay, so let me work you through that. Let me explain that to you. Let's unpack that scripturally. Um, and, but, now, no, but now, and, 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 but what I'm, and let me just say this to add to that. I, I totally agree. We, we, we tend to think of though those gaps and chasms in terms of orthodoxy and we forget orthopraxis. Yeah. And, and it's orthopraxis that is often the heart of what is, is that like, it's not just that they may have a false or a bad theology when they pray, but they don't even know how to pray. Right. So you combine the, the, the undiscipled orthodoxy and the undiscipled orthopraxis. And so that you end up with neither one of them ortho, you know, um, you, you really, you really, we, we just need to realize that, that we, we need to go back to the very beginning. And I make this yeah. case when I talk about evangelism, and I have to make this case when I talk about discipleship with people. When you talk about evangelism, we, like on a scale of one to 10, we assume that people are on an eight, which is where they were in the 1950s and 60s and the, the height of Billy Graham's. He could get up there and just say, okay, the Bible says, and he could have right. them convicted and walking the aisle because they were already on an eight mm -hmm. on a scale of one to 10. He just needed to bump them. Mm -hmm. You know, they already had a positive, you know, they had a background in the church. They had a basic understanding of Christian thought. They had respect for Christian leaders. They um, they had a built-in sense of guilt or conviction when they violated certain things. I mean, I'd give my right arm for someone like that who wasn't a Christian. And today, so today they're not on an eight, they're on more like a two or three. So that's why evangelism is now has to be process and event. And apologetics at its best is explanation. It's not, you know, here's 10 reasons why you can believe the Bible. Now it's, hey, this is a Bible. You know, <laughs> let, me, let me explain what we're talking about here. And so we need to do the same thing with discipleship. They're, we're thinking they're on an eight and we can give them the eight to 10 fun stuff. But no, they're on like a one or a two and you better give them from what takes them from a one or two to an eight. Yeah. And that's what I think is so missing today. Yeah. That's good. So, so Dr. White, how do we do this both? Cause I feel like discipleship is a both and it's systematic and organic. So how do we kind of hold those two things in tension and, and do it, deliver it in both ways? You need an extremely, I mean, <laughs> you need a couple of things that aren't often in place and, and, um, one of them is you actually need authentic, healthy Christian community mm -hmm. to go along with uh, solid foundational Christian teaching. And though that's a rare combination. Yeah. And particularly the healthy community. So much of discipleship is one life coming on to another. That's why mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. There's been all this talk in COVID about, you know, 
that verse in Hebrews, let's not stop meeting together and kind of using that as a champion for we need to gather for worship and First Amendment rights. What a total terrible misreading of that verse. Yeah. That verse has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with corporate worship. It has to do with don't, in fact, let us not stop meeting together. Literally in, in the Greek means don't abandon your post. Don't, don't, don't flee. In other words, you don't run away from the one another's and being in a Christian relationship and in a community. But because if we were the rest of that verse, so we can encourage each other. That that was a thing. It's that relational one-on-one -on -one encouragement. And that's why the heart of, of um uh uh the discipleship in the New Testament is all built around the one another's, the whole string of the one another's. You don't find thou shalt be in a small group in the New Testament. Um, you don't find a lot of that stuff. What you find is the Christian community has to be the kind of place where there's life on life. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a Paul to a Timothy. There's, there's a Titus woman to a young woman. There's, 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 it's just happening. And you talk about organic. That's, that's when it gets electric. When you have generation on generation, this is another thing too. A lot of people in older generations don't think that people in the younger generations have any interest in talking with them. Younger generations, you talk to them, they don't think people who are older have time or care. And so you have two sets of people that both have something they want and the other one has something to give that would love to connect and they're just passing each other by. So if you can have a healthy, organic community where you'd really turn mentoring loose and sensitize people to it. And I, I, I've, I've done whole series on this where I literally, you know, will say, all right, um, is there a single man or woman here over the age of 40 that would turn down a request from uh, a man or a woman in their 20s to have coffee to talk about life in Christ and marriage or sexuality or anything? Was there anybody here who would turn that down if someone in earnest said, I would not waste your time, I will come with 10 questions, I will buy you a cup of coffee. I would love an hour with you. No, nobody would turn that down. You just got to get that turned loose into your community hmm. and make it a healthy one. Yeah. So, so push on the healthy side, because I think, I think that's the piece that we struggle with. Like, I think we have people who want to give, but, but how do you develop them into being people who give from a space of health? <laughs> Well, I don't think you have to always give from a place of completely having your own act together. Right. You just have to give from a place of authenticity and wisdom. And wisdom comes from being broken. Mm. Wisdom comes from learning the hard way. Um, as Nowen said, we're all wounded healers. So, um, so I'm more concerned about are we healthy relationally? Um, I, I, when like the whole me too movement thing, I, I did a series uh, on uh, that and really went through the scriptures about like, okay, so, so how do you, how do you interact with each other in a healthy way? Well, you know, you should be treating women as sisters or mothers and, you know, and just let's really get at this family thing. And that, and that, and that's the heart of the health for me. I, to the core of my being feel like the most important metaphor for the church is family. And I believe that, um, that it's to be led like a family. It's to interact as a family It's to have functionality and health, like a healthy functional family. And when you, and so I'm constantly pouring into that and trying to make that happen and teaching for that and admonishing when we get off course and, and, and I just think when you have that family atmosphere that's so clearly a part of your DNA, that you, you turn this healthy kind of mentoring discipleship interaction loose because it starts to happen very naturally and very organically. Yeah, I love this conversational family. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of different ways that could go in terms of what that means. But I think the first institution God created, family, Adam and Eve, I think carries over into everything that we do, especially this discipleship conversation. So, well, what's the, what's the main qualification of a pastor? Right. He has to, he has to manage his family. Well, right. Why? Because the church is a family. Yeah. Right. If you can't, if you, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. it, it's all in there. 
I mean, it's 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 the dominant metaphor in the New Testament for the church. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's kind of a, take a, a broader conversation than the church as a family, right? Obviously, this pandemic has has created a whole different set of realities for for every church family, local church family. All of us are responding in different ways. Some of us are, you know, curious if we'll ever come back. Some people can't wait to get back or whatever. Some people can't wait for it to be different, right? I mean, so whatever whatever the thing is, um, how do you see at this point church family changing after sort of this, what I would consider really a divine pause on some of our own humanistic sort of, you know, pushes in, in the local church context? So, um how, how are you kind of pursuing this next sure. phase of what's happening? Well, it's been interesting when you look at churches, uh, how they, how this has hit them and how they've responded. Uh, certain things are starting to surface. If you are, an, if you are unhealthy going into this, COVID made it worse. If you were healthy going into this, COVID wasn't bad. And in some ways you thrived. Um, some churches that were not particularly good at being family, but were simply a, a weekend-centric enterprise and didn't have real community and health and that thing, they've really suffered. The churches that, that where they basically were built around the weekend show where have been devastated. The ones that had, okay, they might have had a fantastic weekend, but then they were seven days a week. They were community-based. They were relationally-based. They were on mission. They were just, you know they barely skipped a beat. So um, uh, there are churches uh, I know that have taken like 30% cuts in giving and they've had to lay off people and all that kind of stuff. That just tells me, okay, that was not a healthy church. Mm. People just don't instantly become transactional givers because you're not having a weekend service. They give out of financial faithfulness, not right. as a transaction for something. Um and then you see some churches that have just, man, they're, they're giving us increased during this. Through, through online, they've reached even more people than ever before. I think the key that has worked for us, we, we have been, I, you know, um, thankfully one of those outliers. We've grown tremendously during this time um, in every metric. Is that... But one of the things that we've done is that we've been working extremely hard to keep people engaged as a community mm -hmm. of faith, as a church. And I'm shocked at how churches just aren't doing that. Like, like, like literally, it's like the, the, they just throw some resources out on the Internet, maybe something for the kids and live stream a service. And that's it. No creativity, no thinking outside of the box, no, no, no trying to keep people engaged, not looking at creative in-person events. We, I mean, I heard, like, I'll give you an example. And again, I don't mean this to sound self-congratulatory. I just use it as an example. Like just Christmas, almost every church I knew just got, and leaders would just throw up their hands. What can you do? We can't have Christmas Eve services. We can't meet. We can't, if we socially distance and rope off every aisle, we can't hardly handle anybody. In terms of numbers, we still can have the vast majority online. What can you do? Um, the biggest outreach event and time of the year is Christmas. Blows Easter out of the water. So and everybody's saying, well, what, you can't do anything. Um, we we sat around and we, we it wasn't like, well, it's not what can we do. What can we do? Mm. We know what we can't do. Why spend any more time on that? What can we do? So we came up with this uh, Christmas experience that was totally immersive totally safe um we had to artificially cap the numbers we had to ticket the event all these kinds of things to control it and we still had over ten thousand people go through it and we never had a service we did different things and so we turned our entire building into this walkthrough immersive sight and sound kind of high-tech experience of recreating the christmas story and we said, well, you know, we can't sit them in seats, but we can keep them moving like on a conveyor belt. Right. Yeah. And so we created that whole experience. And then it ended up then in a recreated Bethlehem outside where we had everything, camels and I mean, everything. And it was this phenomenal thing that people told us was the most moving Christmas they've ever had. 
and and I just wish there were a lot of churches that would just work to engage. You know, we had on-campus bear hunts when the whole bear hunt teddy bear craze was going on. We had we 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 had a fall trail experience that we took. We were only able to put about four thousand through because of time frame and spacing, and had to cap it at that. But you just find these outdoor worship experiences and so much more. You can do so much to keep people engaged as a community. And uh, the churches that aren't, they're just, it's, they're just saying, well, I'm just fearful that I'm losing people. Well, that's because you're not engaging them. Yeah. yeah. First thing we did when COVID hit is we assigned to all of our staff, we're going to call on the phone every single member of the church. Mm-hmm. Say, how are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Every single one. We were a phone bank here for, and, and, and that, and that was the right thing. Email would have been the wrong thing. Yeah. People needed a human touch. Yeah. yeah. So all of this creativity and this intentionality on engagement, here's a, a, maybe a million dollar question. Do you think you would have gotten there if you hadn't gone younger in your staff? I don't think we would have done it as well. Because I do think that there's there's a sense for us. We we we've had an online campus for years. We had already made the decision pre-COVID to put all of our energy away from uh, multi-site and in toward uh, the digital revolution and and outreach like that, and just that we were going to and 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 we're planned on initiating another building program because we're on an 80-acre campus, and so we 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 just were retooling all of our strategy. Um, what, what's good about, uh, younger staff is, is that, um, everything that the world has had to do for the last year was they were already doing just, you know, natives, they were just digital natives. They also were, uh, knew what would work, what wouldn't, what the comfort level was. They were able to bring higher production values. There was just so much about it that, um, I do think an older staff uh, alone, uh, would not have would not have done as well. So yes, I think that's an astute point. I, I wanted to ask the opposite side of that question, not so much the younger staff piece, but but do you feel like the the necessity of, of what's happened with COVID has pushed you to further cre- be creative in your engagement? Well, it should be that way. It has us, I think it has some, but the vast majority, I just think, and I, and I, I say this in love, I say this because I'm, I'm, I'm broken for these churches that are struggling so much. But I don't see them trying to be creative. I don't see them trying to engage, um, and and I don't see them. I see I see them having this as a solution. The solution is when we're all back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, when when we're all vaccinated, the solution is to get back to normal. And they don't understand. We'll never get back to normal. The digital revolution was taking place already. This mm-hmm. just sped it up by ten years. Yeah. Um, the whole post-Christian context of our culture isn't changed it's sped that up probably too there is nothing to go back to if you're going back to your weekend service and saying that's basically our ministry wow it's a it's, i mean we live in a space with teenagers and and early young adults emerging adults here on campus and it's everywhere around us like i, I couldn't find a five dollar bill on campus probably now they could venmo me or or cash at me yeah <laughs> You know, nobody has a business card. They have a digital business card or whatever. So, so the revolution's been coming for a long time and is already here, as you're saying. And I feel like the church's response, not as a whole, but many churches response was, we're going to put up a single camera and we're going to do Facebook live and, and y'all just watch till we can all get back together. Yep. And I think that's uh, been the basic response. And it hurts. uh, Sadly, even large churches. Yeah. yeah. And I think as a creative person, that hurts my heart because I go, we serve this incredibly creative God who gives us capacity to do so much more. And we want to take a half a baby step on creativity. Well, here's 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 what we're we were going anyway, culturally. And the churches that have really flourished during this time, they've done this. It used to be that the digital served the physical. Mm-hmm. But now the, phys- the physical has to serve the digital. Your campus, your building has to be strategically serving the digital. And that's what we've done with our campus. We've turned it into one great big serving of the digital. So that was where we were going anyway. The- we were going to what's called the fidgetal 
church. Um, and so if you think you're going to have to swing a little bit into digital, then you can swing right back to all physical when this is over, you, you, you're going to be dead in the water. So yeah. what's, what's the need as people who love the local church, like Rob and I do, and obviously as you do, how do we, how do we make the steps and the shifts to become not, not just irrelevant, but extinct? Well, that's all, that's what all my writing is trying to be about. So rise of the nuns is about meet generation Z is about um, what my blog and the church and culture.org site is about what the conferences and the seminars are all about. I would just encourage these people to start going to school mm -hmm. and it's, it's out there. The models are out there, the knowledge, the information. Um, I, I, what we need to be praying for is that people will have the passion, leaders will have the passion and the determination and the humility and the courage to think, learn, get in touch with what they don't know, uh, change, lead their churches to change and do the hard work of that. This is not a lazy man or woman's job. It is not a fearful man or woman's job. Yeah. It is, it is a, a ministry is, is not for the timid. Right. Man, uh, that, that's an incredible conversation to have, I, I think. But I know we're almost out of time, uh, Pastor, and we certainly want to honor that. Um, I just want to mention again that, you know, you've authored, I think, over 20 books at this point uh, throughout your career. The newest one is After I Believe. And uh, we encourage you to get it and read it. Uh, some mm -hmm. of the other books we mentioned, Meet Gen Z, uh, Rise of the Nuns, Classics. Um, but anyway, we, we love to ask all of our guests one final question. We ask them all the same question to end the show. And uh, so what is one thing, one lesson that you learned in college that did not take place inside the classroom? Well, I mentioned earlier, I became a Christian in college. And so I would say the biggest thing that I learned was that um, was Jesus not simply as Savior but as Lord? Mm. I had an extreme amount of intellectual head knowledge, uh, raised in an unchurched home. But by uh, my father was a PhD, my mother was a school teacher, he was a scientist, research scientist, um, and I I was reading C.S. Lewis in middle school. I mean, just because I recreationally, I just thought it was interesting, and I would was just loved reading all that stuff and i remember i had a mormon roommate and uh i was in my freshman year and i was just slicing and dicing his beliefs in the mormon church because i had read it and studied it and i remember he just stopped me and he said he said jim how can you say anything to me about what i believe with how you live with how you live i mean i was a i was a mess i mean i was i probably had the worst reputation on the campus for and you name it. And so I understood conceptually Jesus as Savior, hadn't accepted that, but understood it. What was thundered to me when I gave my life to Christ at a, actually at a, through an university Christian fellowship meeting, I had three Christian friends who kept building a relationship with me and kept inviting me and kept trying to reach. And I just, you know, always know. But was this 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 thunderous joining together of of Jesus as not just Savior but Lord, not just forgiver but leader, mm. and it was devastating to me. And I gave my life fully to Christ that very night. I mean, I was about as close to a Saul to Paul as you could come. I remember when I woke up my my roommate. I was in sport athletes uh, athletics at the school, and my roommate was on the was a sports too he was a, um on the track team he was a shot putter huge guy <laughs> i remember i came home that night late and i woke him up i said brooksy he said what i said i became a christian tonight he said what i said i i gave my life to christ and he said does that mean we got to get rid of the whiskey i said i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I'll go ask. <laughs> so, you know. Um, That's amazing. Anyway, but you know, it was just a combination of, of hearing about Jesus's, uh, not all that other stuff, but Lord. That's so That's cool. Amazing. Hey, it has been a joy to have you on the show. And, yeah. and I think Jeff and I could probably pick your brain for days, hours, weeks. 
about these conversations. Um, but thank you so much. It's been a joy to meet you. And, uh, and it's been an encouragement. Yeah. I think as leaders, and I hope the listeners who are leaders are encouraged by this conversation and not discouraged by it. It's one of the best discipleship conversations I think uh, we've we had. Love discipleship. Show, so. We love yeah. discipleship. So yeah. and as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, Dr. White, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on. Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.